Welcome to Heart, Soul, and Mind, the podcast from Centenary United Methodist Church. I'm Dr. Glenn Kinkin, Senior Minister here at Centenary. My hope is that this podcast will give you some good news for your journey today. So our lesson today comes out of Matthew's Gospel, the 21st chapter, verses 21 through 32. Let us now hear the words of the Lord. Jesus answered them, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only what will you will do has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. Whatever you ask for in prayer with faith, you will receive. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. And this was his question. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? And they argued with one another. If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why then did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the crowd, for all regard John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, and neither will I tell you by what authority am I doing these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and he said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and he went. The father went to the second and said the same, and the son answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And the chief priests and the elders said, the first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe in him. My friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? So most holy God, we come this morning hearing your word read and proclaimed. And as we gather out in this field, out around this arbor. We ask that your spirit would be woven amongst us just as we feel the wind, just as we feel the warmth of the sun, just as we are comforted by the sounds of creation. But, O oh Lord, let us not be mistaken that while we see you, hear you, and know of your presence in our lives, let us also listen intently to your words so that we would leave this hour not as mere hearers of your words, but as doers of your words. In your son's holy name we pray, amen. So in the early history of the Methodist Episcopal Church all across the South, all across the country, John Wesley envisioned churches being organized in small groups. And Francis Asbury and Thomas Coke carried on the same idea that what would happen is a circuit rider, a minister appointed to a territory, 
would ride into a town in which there wasn't a Methodist society and would pull people together and he would teach them the ways of Methodism, the ways of the class meeting. You've heard me talk about this where they gather on a weekly basis to pray and to read scripture and to ask this question, how is it with your soul? But it was done in such a way that this circuit-riding minister would come to a community to these class meetings about once a quarter. And in that quarter would gather and they would have worship and they would celebrate communion and weddings and the like. And so this begins the root of what we know in Methodism, things such as why many of our churches until recently practiced quarterly communion because we were used to that with the circuit riders of old. Or why our ministers itinerate, why they are moved periodically, again, the circuit rider model. But also the importance of connection. Connection between our churches because at one point they shared pastors, but connections between each other because that's what Methodism was about, pulling us together to grow together in faith. Now back in our history in the late, in the late 1700s, early 1800s, what would typically happen in the South is in August when sort of everything was hot and still, y'all know what that's like? It's also like September and July and fortunately not October at the moment. But what would happen in many of our farming communities is you would have these Methodist societies, these Methodist churches spread out in the country. But they would come together right while they were waiting for the harvest when there was really nothing to do on the farm, as if that's ever truly a thing. And they would travel great distances in their wagons, and they would gather around a brush arbor, much like this one here, though this is much, much nicer. And for a week... They would camp out around it first in their wagons, then later in tents, and later they built cattle sheds that they still called tents, so it was a building. And for a week they would have what was called camp meeting. And for that week it was a time of revival, of fellowship, of courtship, yep, that also happened there too, uh, and discipleship. And so for a week they would worship together, they would share meals, and they would come together and they would have this great opportunity for fellowship, because the circuit rider was in town. The horse riding pastor was there, and for a week, they let their worries stop. And they focused on community. And still to this day, if you ride across our state, you, know, you can find places where they still celebrate the camp meeting spirit. In some areas, there's a brush arbor behind the church because that church was built because that had been a place of a camp meeting. And others, it's in the middle of a community like Denver, North Carolina. But still, the focus is the same when they have camp meeting. Coming together for the work of the church, being and becoming fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, that is to be better disciples. Which leads us to today in our text. And so in the text, what happens is Jesus has been doing his thing. He has been out teaching, and he ends up, sort of ruffling the feathers of the Pharisees and the chief priests and the elders of the church because he knows they disapprove, that they're displeased with his presence, with his disruption, with his work. So he has this encounter with him where they try to play gotcha with Jesus, but he is calmly not intimidated because he knows who he is. He is secure in his source of, of authority. He knows his calling and he's emphatic about his ministry, about his message. So he takes them on once again very cleverly. He deploys a tactic that truly works with this, the most cantankerous of human beings, the most know-it-all types. He could have answered their question outright 
what is your source of authority? But instead, he asks them some leading questions. He challenges them with a story. And in doing so, he lets them figure it out. He lets them use inductive reasoning through this parable to understand where his authority comes from. Jesus lets the Pharisees come to their own conclusion to think for themselves, to let them learn by wrestling with their very question and the answer he provides through this parable. Now for us, for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about those spiritual practices that lead to fruitful living. And on Wednesday nights, we've been talking about basic United Methodist beliefs, things like provenient and justifying and sanctifying grace, John Wesley's idea of going on to perfection, that is being in right relationship with God. And so what we find is with all of this, that this text dovetails right with what we've been studying. It's about being and becoming better disciples. And it starts with this idea of doing God's will, about seeking it out for our lives and then actually doing it. Now what happens is Jesus is challenging the Pharisees because, listen, let's be really clear. They talk a good game about religion. I mean, they talk a great religious game. They know all the rules. They're really good at telling others what they should do or how to live, but they themselves, maybe not so much. Because they're kind of like the second son in this story. They know what to do. They may have even said, yes, I'll do it. They know what to do. They know this idea, this message of loving others and being patient and practicing forgiveness. They even pledge to do it. But what evidence do we see in their lives? I mean, they try to, tap, they try to trap Jesus. They try to play gotcha with him, catching him breaking the law. They, they talk about religion from the standpoint of all the doctrines and everything leading up to it and saying, this law is most important. If you break the law, then bad on you without looking beyond it, without looking beyond what God wants for us besides just the law. What is God really speaking through the gospel message? So Jesus challenges them essentially to change their spots. He challenges them to seek out and to look for God's will. Not the laws, but to look for God's will. What is it God really wants us to do? Who is it God really wants us to be? sort of almost daring them to think of this idea of wanting to be judged on who we include and not on who we exclude. See, what Jesus is saying here to the, to the Pharisees and to us is doing God's will is, a, is the essential component of the gospel. It's our calling as disciples to seek out what is God's will for our lives. And when we begin to do that, then we're on the road to being and becoming better disciples because we're constantly seeking to be just the people God calls us to be. But one thing we know about our human condition, we know that stasis is not possible, that growth is going to happen one way or the other. And it's really growth or it's decline. And so what we know about this idea of the journey of faith is if we're called to follow Christ, we're called to discern God's will, then maybe the best way to describe it is we begin to become more aware of that. Our journey begins to look more like this idea of crawl, walk, and run. Like three phases of life. Now see, the first son understood this. He understood what we we're talking about here, this idea of crawl, walk, and run. Because remember, the father said to him, I want you to go work in the vineyard. And the son said, what? Yeah, not happening, Dad. No way, Jose. And then, 
Later he thinks better of it, and he goes and he does what he's asked to do. He has better is a better idea. He realizes that really that's what I should be focused on. So we put this in the crawl, walk, to run template. Think of it like this. In the journey of faith, this idea of crawling is discovering God's will for our lives, even with the doubts and the denials that we want to have, that maybe God is calling us to be a different type of person. Even when we doubt that or we have denial of that, the fact that we're aware of something in some turmoil in our soul is this first part of discovery. This first part of maybe even prevenient grace. We're crawling along this journey of faith. But the second part is when we begin to realize that, no, truly we are called, and maybe we need to change our spots, maybe we need to change our ways, and we want to repent for our stubbornness, our hesitancy, our denial of it all. That's the walking piece of this. This is when the son all of a sudden realizes, oh, wait a minute, I really messed up here. I should probably go do what Dad asked me to do. And then finally, running, where we're beginning to follow that direction, we seek absolution and we receive forgiveness and we're doing the work that God calls us to do. See, John Lee Wesley calls this final part, he calls this sanctification or this idea of going on to perfection. It doesn't mean that you and I are not going to stumble uh, in our following faith. We're still not going to screw up every once in a while, but we're constantly seeking the guidance of the Holy Spirit so we minimize those stumbles, those foibles, and we're better people. We're the people who God calls us to be. We receive this assurance of pardon, and we realize that there is a joy in doing God's work. There's a joy in following him. And so as Jesus points out to the Pharisees, it's very specifically the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And the reason why is that we know, in, in culturally, we know in those times that those were like the two most hated people in society for obvious reasons. They are easily not doing God's will in their former lives, but when they repent, when they convert, when they realize that there is a will for them and they change their spots upon conversion, they have hope and that there is hope for the world. And they are growing in faith without judging others because they know how far one can fall away. Because they know that this is part of the human condition. And so they pledge to change their lives and they take seriously their shortfall and they stop their sense of self-righteousness and they work on themselves and their own faith formation. So for you and for me, as we begin to try to see ourselves in the story, when have we been like the first one? God calls us and we say, oh no, not for me. And then we change our ways. Because running the race of followers of Jesus Christ means that we are constantly on the road to improvement. Constantly trying to grow and be better persons ourselves. Years ago, a, a wise businessman, a car salesman, by fact, a, a good friend of mine at the time, uh, he said these words. He said, Glenn, if you cannot measure it, you cannot manage it. Now, anybody that's done any kind of business or schoolwork, anything like this, you know to find out whether you're making any progress, you've got to measure it. Take baseball, for example. In baseball, they track 28 different statistics just on batting alone. I mean, really, 28 statistics on swinging a bat at a ball. But it's worse if you're the pitcher there are 42 statistics they track them. Yes, exactly. It's unbelievable. And then there's a whole slew of other things. But we do this in other areas of life. So those of you that are weighing out your stock portfolios and you're trying to pick stocks, you're working with an investment advisor, there are all kinds of statistics there. There's math with calculus. And there's things like trainer ratios and R squares and everything else. People that we don't even understand, it's just like, is this a good pick or not? That's all we want to know. Is it going to go up? That's all I want to know. 
But they can tell you the science behind it because they're measuring these changes. Or if we're working on ourselves and we're trying to get healthier, we want to run a marathon or something like that, there are things that we can do to mark our improvement. Well, friends, in our faith life, in our discipleship, that should be no different. There should be some outward expression, some measurement of the difference that our faith life makes in us and that we make in the world around us because of that. So John Wesley talked about these from the sense of works of mercy and works of piety. He said, these are kind of like the wings of Methodism. You can't have piety, which is that inward growth, without some sort of outward sign of it because it's like a bird. A bird won't work with just one wing. And so we begin to see this idea that as followers, that we need to have works of piety, those things that draw us closer to God, but works of mercy that become the outward expression of what we're learning. And we could learn, we could take a look, for example, to Galatians. We could look at Galatians 5 and the fruits of the Spirit, things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. I wonder if this week, this afternoon, when you went home and after you talked about how awesome today was and everything about it, if you just sat there in the quiet this evening, and those of you that like Excel spreadsheets, this will be right up your alley. Those of you that are scared to death on this is a great way to learn them. Uh, take on this column, put those, put in the first column, put those fruits of the Spirit. And then across the top, put a relative's name. Put a friend's name. Put a co-worker's name. Put five or six names across the top, and then put a space for yourself. And then go down line by line and rank yourself, how well, 1 to 10, do I show joy, or love, or patience, or kindness? And then ask your friends, your relatives, ask those other people on the list, just ask them how well you do that. Now you may think, I mean, you may hit all 10s, hallelujah. You may not. That's okay. That's the place to start. And it's where we start, this is that outward expression, so this is where we grow, and so this becomes sort of our model as we think about it going forward. To seek the will of God, to grow in it, and to show the world what that looks like. See, as our scores go up, then we too are talking about being better disciples of Jesus Christ, and we're showing the world what that means. So when I think about camp meeting when it ends in August, and everybody talks about it was a great time, and everybody goes home. I think about that camp meeting back in the 1700s and 1800s when all of a sudden it was time to pack the wagon up and truck back to the farm for the harvest and everything else. I wondered what did they talk about on the ride home. I mean, it was going to take a day, all day, whatever it might be. There's really a, not a whole lot to do. So what did they talk about? Oh, it was good to see so-and-so there, or... Oh, it's great to see that those two, actually, I thought they always would make a cute couple. I'm glad to see that they connected. Or, I didn't like that hymn we sang. That's kind of a weird one. Um, we got to get a new preacher that can sing on key. Um, thanks. <laughs> I didn't like that pie. It was it had a funny taste to it. It's probably because it's got mayonnaise in it. Uh, who knows? They talk about these things, but how many times do they talk about what they heard? Do they talk about their discipleship? What impact did camp meeting have? What lasting impression upon their life? But here's the homework question for us. When we go home in a little bit after this great day together, I'm sure we'll talk about Donald's fried chicken because it's awesome. Everybody knows that. We'll evaluate the venue. Those of you that remember a different venue, how was this versus that? We'll talk about the dessert, we'll talk about the eggs, we'll talk about the fun, we'll talk about how wonderful the weather is, how great it was to see each other. 
But will we look at ourselves in the mirror? Will we challenge ourselves about being and becoming better disciples, better followers, ones that are less judgmental and more loving toward each other? Will that be the thing that we take away from this time together today? As we come to the table to take communion in a few minutes, I hope that that will be echoing in your heart and in your mind as we receive the meal of the kingdom. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to Heart, Soul, and Mind, the podcast for Centenary United Methodist Church. We hope that you will consider joining us for worship on Sunday mornings at 9 or 11 a.m. Blessings. Blessings.